0: This episode is brought to you by rockauto.com. Amazing selection and reliably low prices. All the parts your car will ever need. Visit rockauto.com and tell them Locked On sent you. You are Locked On MLB. Your daily MLB podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Hello baseball fans, welcome to Lockdown MLB, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. This is the daily podcast, we talk about all the Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan, please call me Sully. Today's episode is being dropped on the third day of September 2020. I'm going to take a look at the standings, throw one rule change at you, which I'm maybe only 20% kidding, and we pay tribute to well, let's face it, one of the biggest stars in baseball history. This show is available on the free and easy-to-use Himalaya podcasting app. We're also available wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're staying at home during these, let's be honest, exhausting times, be sure to tell your smart device to play Podcast Lockdown MLB, or check out some of the other great shows on the Lockdown Podcast Network, including Lockdown Fantasy Baseball with Scott Cullen, or... Maybe Locked On Mets, who, well, I'm going to definitely listen to Ryan and Locked On Mets today to see what they'll be talking about. You can follow me on Twitter at Sully Baseball, and, the, and I'm at Sully Baseball Podcast on Instagram, and you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnMLBPod. So let's just get to the current events in baseball right now. There's the, the standings are interesting right now, because we have to look at the standings differently, because you have a one through eight seed going on. And I, I like the expanded playoffs for this year, because quite frankly, what does 60 games tell you? It doesn't tell you much. I don't know if I'm a big fan of having the expanded playoffs moving forward, but that's a topic for another podcast. I've talked about how especially since it looks like pitchers batting is done and the universal DH is here to stay. I want to just put two sticks of dynamite in the concept of the leagues, two different leagues and realign all the baseball geographically. That's what I want to do. And if you do that, then you would have playoffs within each of the geographic destination, kind of like the NCAA tournament and move it towards a world series. But There's problems by having too many teams in the postseason after, you know, after it kind of dilutes what the regular season is and the fact that it does have some added meaning. That being said, in the 60-game season, you got to open up a little bit. And teams like the Blue Jays and the Rockies would be having the number 8 seed right now. And who's knocking on the door? That would be the San Francisco Giants and the National League, And the Detroit Tigers in the American League. Wait, is this 2012? What's going on here? And the fact of the matter is you can see some teams that you were expecting doing well. You know, the Yankees are going to be a playoff team. And the Astros are going to be a playoff team. And the Dodgers are probably going to have the best record in baseball. But who's right on the Dodgers' tail? Why? That would be the Tampa Bay Rays, who seem to have their way with the Yankees and Could that be the World Series right there? Tampa Bay versus Los Angeles? I don't know. Neither do you. But it's going to make for an interesting run at the postseason. Now, look it. Something hit me as I was watching a game today. I was watching the game between uh, Tampa Bay and the Yankees at an empty Yankee Stadium. One thing hit me was... There's no real reason to play it at Yankee Stadium if it's just going to be empty. And right across the street is the playground that features the original diamond of the original Yankee Stadium. You might as well just play it right across the street. I mean, why not? They're playing the Blue Jays games in a minor league park in Buffalo. But I digress. These are strange situations. Haven't played Yankee Stadium. Fine. Fine. But. We have instituted the new rule to help speed up the game a little bit that a pitcher has to face a minimum of three batters. Now, that's a good rule in theory, and quite frankly, I've liked that rule. I've liked that rule as, I mean, it's not exactly how I would personally do it, but compared to the other big rule change, which is putting the ghost runner on second base to start an extra inning game, which I have been vocal about how much I loathe, having the three batter rule makes sense. Okay, you're not going to have one of those games where you're constantly pulling in pitchers and taking out pitchers and all of a sudden you you have four pitchers trying to get three outs in an inning. You know, I understand that that's a big problem. But one thing we've seen is you have some managers have found ways around that rule have kind of circumvented that rule. And you're seeing something like what happened in the game between Tampa and the Yankees that you would have a pitcher with like one out and nobody on and the manager takes the pitcher out they brings in a reliever to get the final two outs and that way the next day if they want to yank them early they're kind of doing the matchups in their head. And you saw a situation in that Rays-Yankee game where Cash, fine manager, doing a heck of a job with the Tampa Bay Rays. They're the best team in the American League. They nearly beat the Astros in the playoffs last year. I'm not taking anything away from Cash, who's a fine manager, but it drives me a little bananas when a pitching change is made. When there's like one out and nobody on, or two outs and nobody on, make a pitching change. That slows the game down. And here's the other thing that I took a look at. And the Tampa Bay Rays pitching staff held the Yankees to six hits and two runs over nine innings. They used one, two, three, four, five, six pitchers. Six GD pitchers in nine innings, okay? That's fine for an all-star game. That's fine for a split squad game in spring training. This is a regular season game. Six pitchers in nine innings. Really? Really. Now, I'm not going to fault Kevin Cash. The rules are set up this way. They're put together. He's, this is the hand that he's dealt. And he's using that to manipulate his pitching staff. And they have the best record in the American League. I'm not going to take that away from him. What I am saying is, what I suggested is a rule that you submit with the lineup cards, here are the four pitchers that we are going to use in regulation. After the 10th inning, after, you know, when you get into the 10th inning, all hands are on deck. And I have the game being end as a tie after 12 innings. So you're not going to see a situation where someone comes out of the bullpen in an extra inning has to pitch 7 or 8 innings. That being said, there is nothing that grinds a game to a halt than a team that's not hitting and you bring in a new pitcher when there's nobody on base. I mean, Joe Girardi used to do that like crazy when he managed the Yankees and I assume he's doing that with Philadelphia where it's like, oh, two outs, nobody on. The number seven or eight batter is coming up. But my binder tells me I got this pitcher has a better matchup to that pitcher, and we're going to make the move. I'm thinking, really, you can't have that pitcher finish the inning? You can't have him finish the inning and just, we have to come in, get the pitcher, pitcher walks out, pitcher comes in from the bullpen, warms up, and stops the game. And when I saw Kevin Cash make a pitching change with nobody on base, I thought to myself, the Rays should lose a draft pick. Right then and there. Not saying a number one pick, but do you want a number five pick? Every time a team makes a pitching change where there's nobody on base and it's not for an injury purpose, okay, there, there has to be a fine. There has to be something. They lose a draft pick. The, 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 the next batter is rewarded first base. Something. Because that grinds stuff to a halt. You're a major league pitcher. And it's like, you know, one out, nobody on, we're gonna make a pitching change. Why? Is he in trouble? Is he getting slapped around? Maybe you haven't pitched to the next batter. That will speed up the game. Do you know what speeds up the pace of play? Play! Do you know what gives action to the game? Playing it! Not stopping it. So when I say something like they deserve to lose a draft pick, my tongue is firmly in cheek. But the point is there. Stop that. You want the game to move, then move the game. You know, things like stepping out of the box, you know, the time between innings and all that, that's fine. Speed that up too, but keep playing. If you're a major league pitcher, and you've made it through the gauntlet to make it to be. You're on the mound and you're facing other major league batters, and you're a team like the Yankees who do not have some of their big guns out there right now. Do you want to get that batter out? I'm going to let you pitch until you get in trouble. I'm not saying have the pitcher pitch till his arm falls off, but you know, get to the end of the inning. And they, you know so when you make a pitching change, it's to start the top of the inning. Now if they let up a hit, that's another story. That's a different story. But if there's nobody on base, don't make a change. If not, you lose a draft pick. And the more I say that, the more I'm like, maybe I'm not kidding. Maybe I'm drunk with power. But do you know what? When I look up and I see that a team is doing stuff like that and stopping the game I'm thinking someone deserves to lose their job get your resume together because you don't have a job But then that means you have a hole in your company because you just fired someone so maybe what they should do is they should call indeed and let me tell you something indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because indeed gets the best people fast unlike other sites just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash LockedOnMLB. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com MLB. Terms and conditions apply, offer valid through September 30th i tell you another thing that happens when I see a manager make a pitching change when there's nobody on base. And I'm thinking, well, do you know what? I had time to kill. Might as well order some food. And during that downtime, I use Postmates. Postmates is my personal food delivery, grocery delivery, whatever kind of delivery service all year round. Anything I'm craving, Postmates can deliver. They're the largest on-demand network in the United States and offer delivery from all the restaurants, grocery and convenience stores, and traditional retailers I could possibly want or need. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Postmates will give you what you need within the hour. No more trips to the store. You don't really even know where the store is. Postmate will deliver anything to you. Download the app on iOS, Android for free, browse local restaurants and businesses, and track your delivery in real time. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for our first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use the code LOCKEDON. That's code LOCKEDON for $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. Download Postmates and save with code LOCKEDON. Got a text today from my cousin Dave. My cousin Dave is... Basically my brother. I mean, he is someone who I feel that close with. And I actually, at one point in my life, lived with my cousin Dave. After I graduated from college, I lived with my cousin Dave for a little bit. And we text often. And we send pictures. A lot of times we'll send baseball card pictures and things like that. He's a rabid baseball fan. And and I would say at a level that I am. And he is a Mets fan. Through and through. And there was some antagonism between us back in 1986 when I was in high school and he was a college graduate from Marquette University. And today he sent me a text that included a picture of Tom Seaver when Tom Seaver was pitching for the Red Sox. Remember, Seaver was on the 1986 Red Sox team that had their hearts broken by the Mets. Seaver did not pitch in that World Series because he was injured. So we we were denied Seaver pitching against the Mets in the World Series, but that's a different story. And I just figured he was posting a picture to me. And then I just sort of saw more texts coming my way about Tom Seaver. And lo and behold, he's gone. He's dead. Tom Seaver is dead. And it's not a shock. He's been suffering from dementia. He could not appear at the 50th anniversary of the Miracle Mets, which is, you know, it's like having a Rolling Stones reunion without Mick Jagger. I mean, that was his team. And that was kind of clear that he was not long for it. And he had intense dementia. And of course, anytime I hear that, it, it hits close to me because my father is going through dementia. And I know that when that starts to really take its toll you have to say goodbye at that point. You know, the the it's like when Terry Jones of Monty Python died recently and and he had incredible dementia through the last few years and his co-star Terry Gilliam said it was like Terry left and but he forgot to take his body with him. And that's really what it is. Tom Seaver was gone before he died but today he died and put a little sense of finality to it and I have to say witnessing dementia up close death is not always a sad thing in terms of the dignity of the person when they're not working their brain isn't firing they are not the person that they were And so maybe for the family, this was kind of a relief to know that there's some peace and a sense to look back at the positivity of their life. We don't know what their family was going through in terms of caring for him, but I know a little something what it's like to care for someone who is going through that. And to be able to let go of the pain of the end, and celebrate the life, is something that I will cherish when I get a chance to do it with my pop. And I'm sure the Seaver family is loving the outpouring of emotion for a figure in baseball history that he is, I think, one of the great stars the game has ever seen. I actually have no compunction saying that. And I felt for my cousin Dave, and I actually retweeted his tweet about it, because that was his guy. That was his hero. That was the person that he pointed to and said, that's mine. That's the person I can call my own as a Met fan. And there is no shortage of Met fans on my Facebook timeline, my Twitter timeline, and who text me who are about my age or maybe a little older, who say the exact same thing. Hell, my friend Doc Doherty, a wonderful actor who had appeared in the film I directed, I'll Believe You, wrote a whole play about the day that Tom Seaver was traded away from the Mets to the Reds and what how that affected him. Now... If you just want to talk stats and numbers, I, you know, Seaver had a remarkable career by any metric. If you want to do it in terms of the traditional stats and the three hundred wins and pitching for twenty seasons and the the piles of complete games and the times that he would win the you know the ERA title and the strikeout title in the same year, okay. That, that all makes sense. You can point to all that. If you're more into some of the uh, advanced metrics, if you're into war, then he has the 22nd highest career war ever and the seventh highest career war amongst pitchers. Again, I'm not a big proponent of war because I'm not 100% sure how it's calculated, but if you look at the top the, the pitchers who were ahead of him in career war would be Cy Young, Walter Johnson, Roger Clemens, Kid Nichols, Grover Cleveland Alexander, and Lefty Grove. Now, all of those pitchers save for Clemens, his teammate on the Red Sox, all of them pitched in a pre-integration era. And Clemens was injecting God knows what into his body. So you can make a compelling case if you're a sabermetrics type that he is maybe the greatest pitcher of the 20th century. You can make I think you can make a compelling case for that, and he did it with flair, with drama, and with a sort of a larger than life personality. It's funny. My first memories of Seaver was after the infamous trade, when he was a star pitcher for the Reds, is my first memories of him. And it wasn't until I looked at the back of his top score. I didn't know Tom Seaver pitched for the Mets. I always thought he was with the Reds. And when I started, my, my baseball brain started formulating in the late 70s, the Reds were a glamorous team. They had Pete Rose for a little bit. And when I remember him before he went to the Phillies, they still had Johnny Bench, they still had George Foster, they still had Joe Morgan, and they had Tom Seaver, and Tom Seaver's one of the stars there. And he pitched him into the playoffs in 79, and they should have been in the playoffs in 81 when they had the best overall record in baseball, but they were shut out of the postseason. So my early memories of him were with the Reds, but I also remembered him being on TV a lot. He did a lot of commentary, and he was one of those figures that was... Always someone to be interviewed regarding baseball. And eventually he went back to the Mets and played a couple years with the White Sox. And he finished with the Red Sox before trying it one more time with the Mets in '87. He couldn't, you know, they gave him a tryout and it wasn't there. His impact on the game in terms of free agency. Is interesting because there used to be what is called a compensation pool. This is what the 81 strike, what split the 1981 season in half, was fought over free agent compensation. And what ultimately they came up with, the owners and the players, was a compensation draft that if you lost a player to free agency, you could draft a player from another team that is not protected on their 40-man roster. And after the 1983 season, when the Mets had reacquired Tom Seaver, and it looked like they were going to have a ton of talent about to overflow under the Major League team, they wanted to protect the Ron Darlings and Daryl Strawberries and Dwight Goodens on their roster, so they left uh, Tom Seaver unprotected, basically thinking... Seaver's 39 years old, no one's going to draft him, and you know there's almost a the sense of, you know, he's with the Mets now, he belongs with the Mets, nobody touch him. They didn't expect the Chicago White Sox drafted him, and all of a sudden Tom Seaver was a White Sox, and he actually had a couple of very good seasons with the White Sox, and he won his 300th game wearing a White Sox uniform. But I think the <laughs> disgust of what happened of Tom Seaver having to go to Chicago instead of staying in the Mets where he belonged helped end the free agent compensation draft. But I just wanted to throw that out there as a little parenthetical, uh, his effect on the game. Another thing I want to just point out is that he was one of the great pitchers of all time. I will make an argument. He was one of the most entertaining announcers of all time. He had a great voice. He had a great sense of the game had a lot of stories to tell, but my God, he was funny. He was a funny announcer. And let me tell you something. When Bill White left the Yankee broadcast booth to become the National League president, Tom Seaver was hired by the Yankees to be a play-by-play man alongside Phil Rizzuto. Now, I happen to love Phil Rizzuto. He's like your kooky Italian uncle with great stories and great ramblings. When Rizzuto was paired with Tom Seaver in the late 1980s, early 1990s, what resulted was probably my favorite broadcast booth of all time. And anyone who complains that Phil Rizzuto was not good at analysis and didn't give a lot of insight and didn't know a lot about stats, you don't get it. You don't understand. The announcer's job is to be your friend that you're watching the game with. that They may tell you some insights, but you're hanging out with them watching the game. And listening to Rizzuto go off on his ramblings and Seaver, who knew exactly what buttons to press and could crack Rizzuto up and send him off on this and play along with that, I would watched these games. And a lot of these games were like late 80s, early 90s Yankee games when the Yankees were terrible. And so everyone's minds were wandering. I was living at uh, New York as a student at NYU. And when I knew there was a game on Channel 11 that I could watch for free on my TV and listen to Rizzuto and Seaver, I always did. They just were funny. And I kept wondering, why didn't Seaver... Do more of the national games, especially when CBS and later Fox and NBC were doing World Series games and playoff games. Why is Seaver being left out of the booth? And apparently he wasn't feeling well and his, his health was starting to fade and his travel time was lower. But ah, he was wonderful. But his main goal, his main legacy was... An interesting healing for fans in New York. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. The 1950s are considered to be this great uh, period of baseball in New York where the city basically dominated the game. Between 1949 and 1958, a New York team was in the World Series every single year every year the only year where the yankees were not in the world series at that period of time was 1954 when the indians won the american league pennant but lo and behold the giants won the new york giants won the world series that year and the some combination of yankee dodgers or Giants played in every single World Series from 1949 until 1966. However, the story was flipped in terms of them being New York teams because despite all the glamour, the glory, Mickey, Willie, and the Duke, the Dodgers left, the Giants left, and it left a hole in the heart ...of New York sports fans... ...and one of my favorite... ...details... ...of New York sports fandom... ...is that when... ...the Giants and the Dodgers left... ...and there was only one team in New York... ...in 58... ...59... ...60... ...and 61... ...those four years... ...the Yankees were the only team... ...in New York... ...and the fans who were former Dodger fans and former Giant fans, fierce rivalry, those two fandoms seemed to hate each other, were left without a team. And they did not adopt the Yankees. That was the unspoken bond between these two heated rivals, Giant fans and Dodger fans. It was understood they were not going to adopt the Yankees. Now, on paper, you would think they say, well, New York, they abandoned us, and New York stood by with the Yankees, so why don't we join the Yankees? It didn't work that way. That's not how fandom works. And what happened was the Mets moved into the polo grounds in 62, and that year they were the worst team in the history of baseball, at least of the 20th century. That same year, the Yankees won the World Series and yet the Mets outdrew the Yankees. What had created in the vacuum of the Giants and Dodgers leaving was a new form of fan. A new evolution of New York fandom was born with the advent of the Met fan, a fan that did not exist before. And there was a sense of honor that I did not adopt the Yankees, the easy team to pick for, the winner. But I'm going through the pain of a new fandom. And think about what was forged in the pain of that fandom. You lost your team. You're now playing, watching games side by side with the fan base that I used to detest. And if you're a Dodger fan who adopted the Mets... Those first few games, you would have to go to the polo grounds, the very field that your heated rivals used to play in. And they created a fandom where they say, we're going to root for the team that stinks and not the winner. Because we had our butts kicked, we had our hearts ripped out, and we are going to earn our happiness. And what was forged was a brand new kind of team. And eventually they played in a brand new kind of stadium. Shea Stadium was modern. It didn't look like an old-timey park. Which is one of the reasons why I wish City Field did not look like Ebbets Field. I wish it reflected this new fandom instead of the new stadium trying to harken back to the teams that moved. But I digress. What forged was a new kind of fan that... As the Yankees started to crumble, and for a couple of years, New York baseball was truly bad. Between 1965, 66, 67, and 68, another four-year stretch, New York baseball was bad. The Mets stunk, and the Yankees were collapsing. And then came the arrival of George Thomas Seaver. California kid, not a New Yorker, from USC, is the Rookie of the Year in 1967, giving Met fans some hope. And then in 1969, one of the single greatest sports moments of the 20th century, the Mets, who stunk every single year and rooting for the team was a form of punishment, turned around and won the World Series. And in the process, it was Tom Seaver who won the Cy Young Award and nearly won the MVP. And you could have probably made a decent argument for him winning the MVP. And Seaver, with his 273 and a third innings pitch, and 2.21 ERA, 25 victories, 18 complete games, pitched the Mets, past the Cubs past the Braves, and shockingly past the Baltimore Orioles, who put together one of the best teams of the 1960s that year. And the Mets won the World Series, and New York had a champion, and it was the revenge, it was the happy ending for the fans who lost their team. What Tom Seaver meant to that fan base specifically was the hope of a new way to love a team after their hearts had been ripped out. It was the joy that 11 years prior, they had the greatest betrayal and suddenly you had a new way to root for a team, a new team to love and a new hero. And for a whole generation who was coming to age like my cousin in the 60s, who heard about Willie and the Duke and Jackie and Leo DeRocher and all the figures from the Giants and Dodgers, but that must have seemed like it took place during the Cretaceous period. They had their New York hero. He was the first major New York baseball hero to be forged in the 1960s. Think about the stars that the Yankees had. He had Maris for a couple of years, but most of them were the aging Whitey Fords and Yogi Berra's and Mickey Mantles and Elston Howards who all played in the 50s. This was saying there's a new generation. There's a new team. There's a new reason to have hope. There's a new fandom. And Tom Seaver was that, and he was the Mets, and he was the greatest Met of them all. When you think about Met history, they don't have a superstar slugger who spent their entire season or their entire prime in a Met uniform. There is no Clemente with the Mets. There's no Aaron. There's no Mays. There's no Bonds. There's no Williams. There's no DiMaggio. There's no Stan Musial. There's no Hank Greenberg. Yes, you have Piazza, but he had a bunch of his best years with Los Angeles. Yes, you had David Wright, but he wasn't a Hall of Famer. He had a couple of great years. So Tom Seaver is the greatest Met statistically, and he was the hero of a new fan base and a new kind of fandom. I know this podcast went long, but do you know what? When you're Tom Seaver, you deserve to have this type of tribute. And when you're one of the greatest pitchers of all time, period, End of sentence. You should be saluted. And I hope the Seaver family can see the impact that he had. And I hope that they have peace. Because now, he is one for the ages. I know my cousin loves him. All Met fans do. He was the franchise. So go to the free and easy to use Himalaya podcasting app and all the places where you can listen to podcasts. This has been Locked on MLB for the third day of September 2020. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sullivan.